I'm Faz Shakir. I'm Amanda Lippman. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Every Thursday, we try to answer the questions about politics you didn't even know you should be asking. This week, we're trying to explore if everybody hates political consultants, why are they still running campaigns? Our guest today is Tim Lim. He's a political consultant himself. He's a Democratic strategist, an entrepreneur, and full transparency, a board member for my organization, Run for Something. Tim and I have been batting this question around in private over WhatsApp for years. So I'm really excited to bring it out and give it to you to listen to. So Amanda, what is the reason that people seem to dislike consultants so much? You know, people making arguments about consultants can come up with any number of reasons. They might say consultants are grifters, are scammers, are embezzlers, are incentivized to suggest a campaign strategy that might be good for the um, consultant's bottom line, but not necessarily good for the outcome of the campaign. Consultants tend to be risk averse. They're running cookie cutter efforts for all of their clients because they're working on so much at the same time. They're also working for corporations. So your work for McDonald's or Walmart often underwrites the work that they can do for democratic causes. Uh, they're often primarily run by white men, especially older white men, especially older wealthy white men. Uh, they don't make room at the table for young people, young women, young people of color. They overcharge. Um, And the one that stands out to me the most as someone who really works on these local campaigns is that they're not on the ground in the community. You know, we often call them like D.C. consultants. And while they're not all literally based in D.C., there is a sense of groupthink and a sense of removal from the campaign strategy that doesn't give them the kind of informed perspective that really makes a local campaign and even a congressional or statewide campaign successful. It's just it's so hard to bring fresh thinking and fresh perspective and a new way of approaching campaign strategy when you are starting and ending with consultants who are removed from the process. You know, it's hard to get new fresh thinking, new ways of constructing arguments, pushing the boundaries of what might be possible. You have an industry that really kind of maintains status quoism for as long as they can maintain it. That's exactly right. Faz, you were a campaign manager for Bernie's 2020 presidential campaign. You notoriously hired very few political consultants through that process. Why is that? In working for Bernie Sanders, I had the honor of working for someone who has a deep loathing for the influence of money in politics. And it is no doubt the case that when you talk about how campaigns raise and spend money, a lot of it tends to go to consultants. And he gets particularly angry and upset about the overcharging and how much people might have other interests in mind, particularly when you think about somebody like Bernie Sanders, an iconoclast within the Democratic Party, has his own vision, his own desires of what he wants to say and talk about. He doesn't want other people who have business interests that are playing for the long term and, quite frankly, corporate interests coming in and trying to change the strategy and approach of a campaign to such that it fits their business incentives. And I think it's worth teasing out Not all consultants are evil people. Not all of them are grifters. Not all the people who work in the industry are going out of their way to screw over campaign strategy in order to make more money. But the structure of consulting and the structure of campaigns and the economy within it is such that it's really hard to be an ethical consultant in the political space, at least on the Democratic side. I can't speak to what Republicans do. I assume it's even harder on their end. But for us, it's really difficult because you are balancing so many different levers. Yeah, incredibly difficult. Um, All right, Amanda, let's bring on our guest, Tim Lim. He's the president of Lim Consulting Services and a partner at Hooligans Agency. Tim, welcome to Battleground. Hello. 
So Tim, when we talk about consultants and people in like the discourse around political campaigns often shit talk consultants, that's like a very broad term that means a bunch of different things. So I want to land on a definition of consultants for the sake of this conversation to be very clear on who we're talking about. Do you have a suggestion? Consultants are essentially subcontractors, right? If you don't want to hire, can't hire someone into the campaign to do the you know, specific job, then you're essentially you're subcontracting it to someone else. And that's for anything, whether it's direct mail, whether it's email, fundraising, IT security. So consultants, it's a pretty broad word. I think most people, when we talk about when they hate consultants, it's around the ones that are around advertising, you know, direct mail, digital TV. We can concentrate on that, but I think folks don't realize how large of a scope it is. You and I have been having an ongoing conversation about consultants and digital strategy and the grifting nature of many participants in the Democratic Party for what feels like four and a half years and running over a WhatsApp thread. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm really glad to bring this to the podcast. Our big question for this episode is, if everybody hates political consultants, why are they still in charge? Why do they still exist? Do you have an initial answer? The answer is that we have a massive structural problem within the progressive movement, not just Democratic Party, but literally every organization involved that does not incentivize our top leadership to stay, that incentivizes folks to become consultants because that's the only way for them to be compensated for their talents and their skill sets. Mm -hmm. When I say we have a structural problem, I mean, this is a holistic problem. In all aspects, we need changes because everything that's involved right now and every stakeholder is involved, is so incentivized to keep the current structures in place. What that leads to then is deprioritization of organizing, deprioritization of year-over-year investments, deprioritization of staffing in general, and much bigger prioritizations to ads. <laughs> it is much easier for me to go to a donor and sell a $100 million ad program that's just TV ads than it is to ask for $10,000 for year-round sustaining of that organizing. That's insane. That just doesn't make any sense at all. Right. And I am the first person ads consultant to say that ads are not going to solve your issue. Ads are not going to solve the problem. Tim, how do consultants get paid by campaigns? Explain the fee structure for most consultants. For advertising specifically, a lot of it's based on commission. So a percentage of the buy is the compensation. It's anywhere from single digits to 15%. The commission for a buy it happens when the dollars are spent. So you get the commission only after the buy is done. You look at the FEC reporting, you'll see that most of the ad spend happens between September to November in an election year. For folks who do a service like fundraising or polling or things like that that are not ads related, their structure is going to be a monthly retainer that's paid out. Tim, can you tease out a little bit the concept of cash on hand and how campaigns structure their finances over the course of a campaign cycle? Campaigns have to look at themselves like any organization with money coming in, money coming out. They have the budget so at the end of each quarter, you have to report how much you raised and how much you have in the bank to the FEC. And then those numbers are kind of used as horse race numbers to judge a candidate. So if you raised a lot of money, but you spent a lot of it, that's a no-no. If you raised a lot of money, didn't spend a lot of it, 
That means you're a great candidate. You're going to go places. Uh-huh. The reason why commissions are so popular, right? The reason why campaigns and even the campaign committees are pushing it is all about this stupid cash flow thing. So with commissions, you can have your consultants working on your campaign for like a year and a half, not pay them. And then you can just pay them this massive amount of commission at the end because who cares at that point, you know, you're not looking at the FEC, but this is, it's, it's, so you see, it's like institutional, right? Like the campaigns think that they're doing the right thing because what they're told and the consultants are following the lead of the campaigns and the committees who are telling them to do that. And so you have this kind of broken incentive structure that doesn't properly compensate people in the right way. And you end up with bloated commission fee structures. But, you know, I I can't blame all the consultants for that because it's not like, you know, the leaders of the party are trying to change it, which they could. But because of this obsession with cash on hand, we're still stuck in that type of thinking. And I think this is where it moves from like inside baseball gossip to why it matters for people who don't work in politics, because the commission structure and the pay structure for consultants ends up directly affecting campaign strategy, which directs the outcomes of the election. Often TV consultants is usually who we're talking about in this and maybe direct mail and occasionally digital, but usually it's TV consultants are the ones who tend to build the longest relationships with candidates because they work with a often like congressional or Senate candidate cycle over cycle. They're often some of the first people brought in because the ads tend to be sort of derivative of the broader campaign messaging and because they tend to have the biggest part of the budget. They're the ones most deeply embedded with the conversation about how you're spending the campaign's resources, which then compile that on top of a commission structure incentivizes a TV consultant to recommend more TV ads. And it becomes a really flawed structure where it is really in their best financial interest and perhaps not in the best interest of the campaign or not seeing the bigger picture of the campaign. 100%. TV buying is the most profitable, uh, least amount of work out of all the buying. (laughs) Right. I mean, and, and listen, I am not saying that it's not a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but you can have one media buying firm service two dozen media consultancies. For digital buying, it requires 10 times the amount of people. It's just much more work. It's the same thing with direct mail. You have so many more people involved. You have printers and you have production firms, and then you have to get it to the post office. There's a lot of moving parts. And so media consultants are incentivized, but more money, not just any TV, but broadcast TV, because broadcast TV is the most expensive line item in any advertising campaign. And so the more money you can spend on broadcast, really the less amount of work you need to do. I agree. Uh, One aspect of it, too, that I have found difficult, and I'd love your thoughts on it as someone who's lived in the world, is the interlacing tangled web of how the consultants all relate to one another. Mm-hmm. And you get this in some degree of the pricing too. You're never really sure is somebody <laughs> getting a cut here to give to somebody else? Yeah. Is this how the referral works? Yeah. This direct mail firm works with this uh, other big, you know digital firm that yes. works with this other place and they're all they're all a package deal and yeah uh, you know the pricing is somehow is all interrelated yeah as an outsider you're trying to hire you're like it'd be easier to make these judgments one to one of like okay here I need this service but it ends up being a very convoluted web that's exactly how the industry works I'm guilty of that as well I both recommend and benefit from recommendation some cases there's a finder's fee some cases there's not in that respect I'll say it's not that much different from the brand side, where you see that there are similar practices. I think it's a little bit more like contract based, but people are incentivized to help other people 
for business relationships that folks probably don't know of or aren't clear about. Faz got at this a little bit of it. It feels like there's no transparency. And the FEC reports, at least for federal campaigns, allows for a little bit in that you can see how much a campaign is paying a vendor. Um, But consulting firms are often used to cover up, I wouldn't say crimes, but things that could seem like crimes or at least feel like spiritual crimes. And that often end up being incredibly lucrative for the partners or the principals in the firm and not that actually meaningful in program. And this is where you get into a conversation, I think, about grifting of the ways in which consultants often, it's not embezzling, but it often feels like embezzling money from what are ultimately donors who are trying to invest in a cause they believe in. Tim, do you have an example of maybe the most egregious grifting you've seen? Okay, now you're trying to get me in trouble. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, ad buys, I mean, fundraising programs, it's everything, right? It's, It's anything that can be sold as a good or a service. You can speak anonymously or in cloaked language. Well, I want to make one point and then I'll give an example. I think why grifting happens in most cases is because people internally, the person running the campaign or the person that's advising the campaign, like most folks right now who run campaigns don't have the expertise. Mm-hmm. They don't have the knowledge base, the experience. And maybe it's just me getting older, but it just feels like campaign managers are getting younger and younger these days. No offense, Faz. <laughs> you look very young. You're very, very young. But, you know, like the congressional campaign or the governor's campaign, like I'm on the phone with a 25-year-old. I'm like, how many campaigns have you run? And they're like, this is my first time. I'm like, you're running like a top campaign in the country. Okay, let's just, we're going to go with it. So I think it's easier because these folks don't know what they should know. They don't know what to look out for. What happens, especially if there isn't strict legal agreements, which in a lot of cases there isn't, that property or that inventory, whichever, can be marked up several times before they get to the client. So what a client thinks is X amount at 15% commission really has already been marked up five times beforehand in the supply chain. But they might not know any better just because they don't have the experience to say, wait a second, that pricing doesn't make sense or that seems a little bit too high. It's not happening as a rampant, we got to have a commission to look into it type of problem. But when we're talking about dark money, when we're talking about super PAC money, it happens a lot more because there's little to no transparency into how these things are done. A little to no transparency how it's done, then hard to assess if you're good. Mm-hmm. So I think you've talked about it, but like it's almost like an industry that is intentionally hard to decipher yes. about whether one digital ad placement, TV ad placement, direct mail piece is better than another. You see a lot of collusion of a kind. The work products and the types and the roles feel similar across the board. Yeah. The research, the data, it's an entire industry. It's, you know, not just the consultants. There's reams of papers or academic studies that say, well, no, TV advertising is going to totally be effective and blah, blah, blah. I mean, let's just take a step back and think about what the normal ads cycle looks like for a campaign. We just talked about cash on hand and not spending any money. So everyone says you got to be up the most in the last six to eight weeks of a campaign. Well, How does that make sense, though? Because that's when everybody's up. And by that point, so many people have already made up their minds. So you're telling me that I should be spending the most amount of money in the time that's going to have the least amount of impact. Mm -hmm. I have gone round after round arguments with folks yelling at them about this because it just is so counterintuitive. So we're telling campaigns, no, no, we got to like go up earlier because we want to engage the voters 
earlier, not later when everybody's up. And it's going to be harder to even break through. We should be starting in the summer, not wait until right after Labor Day. Mm-hmm. That's how normal campaigns go is you go crazy after Labor Day and you go real crazy from October to November. I even dealt with, in one case, I'm talking to a donor advisor and they got this pitch deck from somebody. Literally, the group was like, we think that TV advertising in the last six weeks is going to make the difference. Like, if we spend more money on TV advertising in the last six weeks, we can really shift the narrative. And I saw donors who were dropping tens of millions of dollars in races in the last six weeks on TV because someone convinced them that that's how we're going to be able to move the needle. Guess what? We didn't win any of those races <laughs> that was in in 2020. Spoiler alert. But it's counterintuitive, right? It's like, wait a second. Why would I spend more money closer to the election on TV when TV is supposed to be, or any sort of advertising, when advertising is supposed to be a persuasion tool, it's supposed to change minds, wouldn't I want to start earlier, spread it out, and then get more impact out of it? So, yeah, I mean, it's a whole industry. We have to take a quick break, but we will be right back with Tim Lim. Welcome back to Battleground. I want to get into a little bit of the ideology of consultants. Tim, what are consultants doing when they're not working for campaigns? They're working for non-campaigns. They're working for brands, companies, nonprofits, uh, but a lot of them work for companies. Which ends up being, what, well more than 50 to 60% of their business, right? I mean, it isn't the case that generally campaigns are driving that business. Honestly, that's where it's all over the place. Yeah. I would say the largest firms, the ones who do the most business, rely heavily on corporate business. Mm -hmm. Right. And so now you get into a situation as you're trying to execute a political campaign with an ideology. Now you're interacting with consultants who certainly have business interests in mind that are longer horizon than a short-term political campaign. And I think this kind of syncs up with the point that Amanda was making, that it isn't just merely that the consultant is there and they have a point of view. It is that often the consultant who is brought in is brought in for a point of view because they are deemed to be an expert. So you've really brought in an outsider and said, you're going to help drive the campaign's message. It's not just merely that you're here to do a service. Because we've hired for quote-unquote expertise, you're going to be here to give really important thoughts and opinions about what we should say. And I think as a result of that, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, Tim, that it ends up being the case on most campaigns to the extent that you're having a strategic conversation that the key people in that room, many are consultants. Has that been your experience in the campaigns that you've been part of? I think non-presidential, that's more the case. Right. Presidential is completely different. And then when you talk about Senate or statewide or House race, because of this talent pool discussion we talked about, most of the senior conversation is with consultants. Right. When I worked on the Florida governor's race in 2014, and we had like a senior leadership retreat, there was probably 30 people there. Maybe 20 of them were consultants, yep. either for the state party or for the campaign. None of the consultants were women, (laughs) and maybe one of the consultants was a person of color. And I think this is one of the broader issues with consulting writ large is because you need to build up some time and some reputation and often have to be really like in the room or talking about money, it ends up being a very white, very male industry. 
at least that's starting to change. Tim, your face is like, absolutely. But it's starting to change. Yeah. But it's a huge problem when we think about how Democratic campaigns need to be informed by a diverse group of people because we're trying to reach a diverse group of voters. I'm horrified. But anyone who knows me knows that I've been harping on this for years now. You know, I'm, I'm a Korean American. I'm not the typical like political operative profile. And I know that and I've dealt with it for over the years. I think a lot of times I've been asked to be put into a room to be the minority mm. so that whatever the brand is doesn't feel like they're too white. And it's a huge problem today in the party. I mean, it's a huge problem for many reasons. The equity reasons, it's fairly easy to lay out. But from a strategic standpoint, if the folks who are creating all the messaging and the ads and the content are white males, and white males are not voting Democratic, then there's a huge disconnect. <laughs> We're probably not creating the content that is going to resonate the most with our base audiences. So I do think that this is a problem from a strategic standpoint, too, because it means that we're not putting our best programming possible to turn out Democratic voters, which is what we want to win. Right. It's not just messaging. It impacts everything, budgeting, staffing, lots of other things, not just about the TV ad you see, but the ethos and the prioritizations the campaign is making. Mm -hmm. How you hire a consultant ends up being an interesting world. <laughs> because at least in my experience, and I welcome your guys' thoughts, there's not really kind of a database warehouse to just go online and find the 16 digital firms, mm -hmm. look at some degree of accountability and transparency about how people have reviewed- DemocraticYale.com. <laughs> how people have reviewed these firms, what do people think about them? How do these people arrive? They arrive with networks mm -hmm. and friendships and I know so-and-so. And there's, you know, there's a hustle to the sales side of this where people are just working the phones trying to get in front of you to say, hey, I'd like to make a pitch and here's who I am. I know so-and-so is a friend of yours, which tends not to be a great way to hire a consultant because you're not making it on the basis of any merit. You're making it on the basis of some kind of a friends network. I wonder if there's just better ways to figure out who and how to hire. I once railed against this, and then I just acquiesced, and then I did what everyone else was doing, because that's how you get business in this industry. And if you don't, you're, you're not going to be making any money, and then, you know, then you don't have a job. So I'm going to be a hypocrite when I talk about it, because I am doing everything, as you just mentioned, because that's how it works. Uh, the one thing I will also note is it's becoming kind of funny. I don't know if you all are knowledgeable of the Rooney rule in football. Mm -hmm. um, football teams have to interview one minority, at least one in their coaching position. Mm -hmm. But what is happening is the football team doesn't hire the minority. They just do it for shits and giggles. You're starting to see that in the Democratic space. We had this big diversity push. We got to uplift black and brown voices. We got to uplift people of color. But it's more like lip service. People get the chance to RFP, but they don't get hired. For me, just watching that happen on a macro level in politics, I'm not surprised when you look at who the leaders of our party are. We've made some progress, but it's still fairly white male dominated. Mm -hmm. And do I have ideas on how to change it? Sure. I'm just a little jaded and cynical at this point where I don't think it will until U.S. demographics change to a point that it's inevitable. Right. Transparency, sunlight, articles, that might help. But I feel like a fool if I'm like, oh, well, you know, we just got to do X, Y and Z. And then it's going to be changed because it's deeper than structural, I think. Yes. I don't know where to start on that one. 
I agree, Tim. It's deeper than structural. It's moral. It's ethical. There's a lot of things going on there. It probably deserves a podcast in its own right. We don't have time to do that right now, but we'll continue with this podcast after we take a short break. We'll have more with Tim Lim. Welcome back to Battleground. It has gotten to the point, at least among some Democratic campaigns, where to be consultant-driven is used as like an attack on the campaign of like, oh, they're run by D.C. consultants, we're run by grassroots, local organizers, that kind of thing. Knowing that and knowing that consultants are so vilified as part of the conversation, even though everyone's using them, even though they're a necessary part of the structure. you talked about this a little bit, and I think it's worth calling out. Why someone becomes a consultant is because work-life balance on a campaign or to work in politics for anything past your mid to late 20s is really hard. It's not even hard. I think it's impossible. If you're married and you have kids, there's no way you could support your family. I mean, I just found it so ironic that we are the party of justice and equity and all this stuff we talk about. And yet we treat the people who work in our party the worst. Mm -hmm. You look at compensation, healthcare benefits, it's no surprise. So for me, it's like, I'm a consultant, right? And it's the only option I have if I want to stay involved in politics, but I don't want to worry about whether or not I have health insurance. I think we have to have a real serious discussion internally about what is success? What is compensation? How do we want to live? Because we talk so much about it. And yet, when you start drilling down into what we do as a party, I'm not talking about party committees, I'm talking about all the super PACs, the nonprofits. Yeah, it doesn't incentivize our top leadership to want to stay and grow and improve the movement. And this is where you get some of the most senior talent of the party, people who know the most, like who you really want in the rooms are consultants, not because they want necessarily to be consulting, but because they want to not have to move every eight months and want to be able to like make sure their kids are going to the same school cycle over cycle. It is such a structural mess that has real specific outcomes that affect the way that these elections run. Yeah. And people say, oh, well, boo-hoo, like that's the smallest violin. <laughs> well, it's like, okay, trade shoes, right? Like if you have been doing something for a dozen years or more, and you've been specializing in this trade craft, and there's no market for you to do that in a in a group of nonprofit, or the market is so small, there's only like five people, right, that, that can handle it, mm -hmm. then how are we supposed to say, yeah, no, that makes sense. You're a paid media expert, and if you can only have a job for one year out of three, how does that make sense? We have some real organizational development issues within the party, around labor pool, diversity, compensation, benefits, that I don't think we really want to have, because if we did, it would be a lot worse than we'd expect. We started this conversation, Tim, with Amanda asking you, if we all hate political consultants so much, why are they still running campaigns? And I think the way to end it is to get some of your thoughts about, is there a way to incentivize people not to have to become consultants? Do you have any thoughts about that? Yes, I do think that we can stop a brain drain from organizations by reforming and changing the way that a lot of these organizations are funded, talking about being able to fulfill their budgets, not having to downsize after a campaign cycle's over, not having to scrape uh, 
and beg for a five-figure check when really a super PAC could get a $100 million check in the last quarter of an election cycle. I think that really being able to have a conversation with not just the consultants and the staffers involved, but also the funders and the donor advisors to talk about how we can create a much more sustainable staffing movement, I think can really help. Right now, everyone's just stuck in concrete and just talking about it is heresy. Tim Lim, thank you for joining the Battleground Podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. See you on WhatsApp. Thanks so much to Tim Lim for joining us on this episode of Battleground. I thought it was really great of him, not only gracious of his time, but to be so candid as someone who works within the consulting field to give us his thoughts, knowing that probably some people who are his friends and colleagues might not always love what he's saying. But thank you, Tim. Uh, Very kind of you to offer and educate all of us about the political consulting world. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Aliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our assistant producer, and Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 